0: Hey y'all, you're listening to Word on the Street, an OML and RRC podcast. My name is Issa Montes. I'm a student inclusion educator on the OML side, and I'm joined here today with two lovely people from the Ignatian Center, um, and I'll just have them go ahead and introduce themselves.
1: Hi, my name is Jasmine Lowe. I use she, her pronouns and I am one of the program directors for Immersions at the Ignatian Center. Hi, I'm Maria Otre, she, they
2: pronouns, and I am the other program director for Immersions at the Ignatian Center.
0: Wonderful, so today um, we're just in conversation with one another and with you listening about Um, houselessness and specifically the urban plunge that the Ignatian Center um, does every quarter and yeah just talk about the Ignatian Center immersions and some things that we took away from the urban plunge. I went on the urban plunge in February this quarter and I just heard about it through email through the Ignatian Center emails um, or the Either that or the College of Arts and Science emails. And I read a little bit about it and I think I was interested to see a place where, despite being in the Silicon Valley, despite being in San Francisco, one of the most affluent areas in the nation, that there was such disparity of income, of shelter, um, of housing. So I decided to go on this urban plunge, which, is a day-long immersion with the Ignatian Center. Um, I went with a couple of other students. Um, A typical urban plunge with the Ignatian Center um, looks like meeting early in the morning at the Ignatian Center, which is um, kind of across the street um, from the nobly side um, of campus. And so we all met there and Um, For me, the urban plunge was um, in SF. So we all took two vans. um, (laughs) Thank you, SCU vans. um, (laughs) Took two vans to the Tenderloin District. um, And so there we worked with Faithful Fools. um, So they have a space in um, the Tenderloin district that we all went to kind of as just a point B um, to have, to be in conversation with each other and lay out our day. Um, And then basically though, after that, we were given the chance to um, buddy up and basically walk around the Tenderloin, um, just to look around, um, be in community with others, understand the Tenderloin and kind of see Um, the area and then the one thing that we all um, had to do before we came back to Faithful Fools was to have a meal in one of two soup kitchens and then we did that, um, were able to walk around a little bit more and then came back to Faithful Fools to be in discussion with one another, kind of talk about our experience and why we were there with each other um, and make sure that this was um, a meaningful experience so once we did that, um it was time to go back to Santa Clara and we all um got in the vans again and came back. So that's kind of what an urban plunge looks like. Could you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. Um
1: so the hope of an or the idea behind an urban plunge is you're spending one day getting to know a community a little bit better and trying to understand a social justice issue from the community perspective. So in San Francisco and San Jose, where we do urban plunges, we almost always look at houselessness because it is so prevalent in the Bay Area. And our goal is to give students um, just a little bit of a glimpse into the issue or the, the issues around houselessness, what contributes to houselessness, and also humanize the experience um, and show them all the work that's being done around houselessness and working towards housing justice um, and how to further their own experience and understanding of um, social equity. Um, Yes, and I think I would add to
2: that is the Ignatian Center is um, the house for the community engaged learning team, so we do a lot of programming beyond the plunges, but the plunges really do uh, feed into all our partnerships with organizations in the Bay Area. So we work very closely with Faithful Fools, who is the the, the organization that hosts us in San Francisco, who do specific outreach for housing, uh, housing rights, uh, houselessness, accompaniment, and other work on the streets. Uh, And in San Jose, we work with other grassroots organizations, Feed the Block, and Black Outreach, that also do direct um, accompaniment-based work in San Jose area with the encampments. So this is really part of a bigger work with organizations and with community-engaged learning that is opportunity for SEU students to go and be with
0: communities. Yes, and I think uh, part of the reason why I was so interested in this immersion was because I had a curiosity for how these circumstances arise, how this might be connected to capitalism, to, to other just histories of oppression. And so I think it was really informative not only to read about these things, but to to be in that community um, and to walk around San Francisco in the Tenderloin District. Um, can you tell us kind of what the Tenderloin District is?
1: Sure, so um, this is a very brief and inf- informal history, um, but based on what I've personally learned from our partners at Faithful Fools is the Tenderloin District that has, is one that has historically Um, been targeted by city officials and police as a place to essentially push crime and houselessness so that it's not in other parts of the city so there's a lot of policies in place that um, will kind of push or almost like corral really Mm -hmm. um, a lot of different aspects of crime and houselessness into this one area as a way to almost erase it from the rest of the city Um, and I think it's Fairly well known among San Francisco residents and probably Bay Area residents, um, that the Tenderloin is seen as just like a bad area. It's like, oh, you don't go there. Like, if you're not if you're not actively living there, there's, it's kind of seen as no reason to go there necessarily. Um, it used to be the Um, There was a lot of actually, like, gay activism in the Tenderloin um, initially, and I think that was one of the reasons why it was targeted is because there was a negative stigma around the area already. Um, And so you see a really, really high concentration of folks who are unhoused in um, the Tenderloin, and that narrative has kind of persisted um, and caused a lot of stigmatization around the kind of, like, four or five Block, um, chunk of San Francisco. Yes. Uh,
2: also, interesting history about the Tenderloin is that it houses a lot of residential hotels. They are hotels that serve as long-term housing for individuals. So, because of that, the ha- the the city has really bought out many of these hotels as form of informal shelters for people people experiencing houselessness. Um, so that is why also it's very location specific. Uh, like Jasmine said, uh, a lot of issues are corralled in the area. Um, and I think we can speak a little bit about the demographics of houselessness, specifically in the Tenderloin, because we see that a lot of um, people, especially Latinx and Black, Uh, people that are really a small part of the bigger number of San Francisco residents are overrepresented in the houseless numbers. So I think it's almost 30 something percent of houseless people are Latinx and also like a very high uh, number for black individuals. I don't know, do you have the numbers? Yes. Yes.
0: (laughs) What a great transition. Yeah, so I'm <laughs> going to read off some of the numbers here um, because the this issue of housing disproportionately affects Black and Latinx mm-hmm. folks. Um, so the share of Hispanic slash Latinx people experiencing homelessness actually increased from 19% to 30% since 2019, which is a 55% increase, even as the total count of people experiencing homelessness dropped by 3.5% so um, this figure just reflects that overrepresentation that you were talking about um, while latinx people make up 16 percent of san francisco's general population they're 30 percent of unhoused people and black african-american or mm-hmm. african unhoused people are also overrepresented at 38 percent of the total houseless population compared to six percent of the general population and Asians or Asian Americans are underrepresented at 6% of the homeless population compared to 37% of the general population. Yeah, so those are just some of the numbers and some general numbers on shelter spaces. Since 2019, unsheltered homelessness decreased in San Francisco by 15%. In 2019, there were 5,180 unsheltered people Experiencing houselessness, but in 2022, this number dropped to 4,397. So this decrease corresponds with a significant increase in housing and shelter resources. Um, Yeah, so in 2020, there was an 18% increase from um, people staying in shelters since 2019. um, And that corresponds with a 24% increase in available shelter beds. Yeah, so that's some background on the Urban Plunge and also the Tenderloin District. Um, I guess we can kind of just speak to our own experiences. Uh, I think you all have been on more Urban Plunges than I have. Um, That was my
1: first one to San Francisco. Yeah, so I had not done that before. I'd done once to San Jose, but that was Mm -hmm. also my first time experiencing Faithful Fools um, and going on what they call a street retreat.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Is, does San Jose, is it a different experience than uh, the Tenderloin in SF? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so our urban plunges to San Jose are with, um, like Maria previously mentioned, our San Jose partner. Um, their organization is called Feed the Block. They're really, really wonderful. Um, they're part of a larger program called Black Outreach um, that was formed by San Jose community members in 2020. Um, And they've been providing mutual aid and cooking up really delicious brunch Mm -hmm. every Saturday um, since they were founded. I believe they were founded in July of 2020. Um, And so we go, we help with their brunch program um, that was modeled after one of the Black Panthers programs. um, And they bring brunch to folks who are living in the Guadalupe River Park encampment, um, which has actually had very recently some really intense, rapid changes because mm-hmm. of FAA regulations around Guadalupe River Park. Um, but they serve three to 600 meals a week. FAA is
2: the, oh, the flight authority. Yes, that's, yeah. <laughs> um,
1: the FAA, the Federal Aviation <laughs> Association, um, essentially told the city of San Jose, you can't let people live on this land. Um, and it was the land directly below the San Jose airport. Um, that was in the flight path. So um, there was a really, really large encampment there, about 350 to 400 people was um, one of the estimates, and all of those people have since been displaced. So the community is still very present around...
0: That's okay. You're good. (laughs) Our charger was unplugged. (laughs) No worries. (laughs) It's charged now. Um, Yeah, the community
1: was displaced around Guadalupe River Park, um, so the community still exists, but they're in a lot of different locations now. They've kind of been pushed out of that large field. Um, and I, and so part of what we do on the plunge as well is go on distribution. So we go into the encampment uh, and distribute meals. Um, and Lou, who is one of the incredible leaders of Black Outreach and Feed the Block, um, has developed really strong community connections with all the members there because he's gone and handed out brunch every day for the past two, two and a half years. So. Um, you get a chance to see what those community connections and that community network that exists there look like, Mm -hmm. as well as the kind of harsh realities of an encampment and living in an encampment. And especially with all the rain and floods recently, um, Mm -hmm. a lot of folks have lost all their belongings or have been forced to move. Um, So that was just a little sidebar of um, a similar concept of learning about houselessness from community members in San Jose, but it does look different than in San
0: Francisco. Mm. That it's so interesting. Um, you mentioned like the the programs for um, food. I am taking Black Power right now with Dr. Mm-hmm. Hazard. Um, it's an upper division ethnic studies course here, and it's so it's such a good class. Um, and we were talking about the Black Panther movement um, and how they fed uh, so many children mm-hmm. in um, breakfast programs mm-hmm. that were. Mm-hmm. Um, started and run completely by community members i think it speaks to the power of community and how um we were watching a documentary for class the other day and they talked about how they fed more children more black folks than the government Mm -hmm. ever did Mm -hmm. and they like uh food resources for kids in school like funded by the government were actually modeled after Mm -hmm. um the black panthers so I think, yeah, it, it's really interesting to think and talk about um, the power of community and also what the government could be doing um, to help in these spaces. I think for me and in, in my own experience of the urban plunge, um, I left with a lot with a lot more curiosity. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I didn't expect to like go in <laughs> and have my mm-hmm. questions answered. I, I think I certainly left with more questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was such an important experience. Um, I think one of the main things too uh, that I took away, part of the day that we spend um, in SF is having lunch at one of one of two um, uh, soup kitchens called, St. Anthony's is one of them, mm-hmm. and then the other one, what was the other one? It's Glide. Glide, yeah. Um, I went to St. Anthony's, uh, me and my partner, um, and we were sitting in uh, having conversations with other um, folks who were also there for a meal. And I think like being on campus so so much around everyone who's the same age um, and just like a really homogenous community. We're all, like when we first meet each other, we're like, what are you majoring in? Like, where are you from? Like, what, what are your plans after college? Um, kind of those things. I think when we were there though, I was really challenged to have different conversations. Um, I'm, I wasn't there to ask, where do you live or what do you do for work? Um, I think I was, I was more drawn to ask questions like, does your family live here? Like, where did you grow up? Um, I think to think, a big takeaway that I had from the whole day was to think of people first. Mm-hmm. Um, and it goes back to even that idea that we talked about uh during the plunge the that the faithful fools brought up um the idea of what keeps us separate Mm -hmm. um so what what does that mean to you what keeps us separate or can you speak a little bit more about that
2: yes um so i think a lot of our programming really our goal is to build solidarity and like you said that is very hard to do when you're in very homogeneous like settings Mm -hmm. um So we have some pillars or values that we guide all our programming through, that are um, solidarity, spirituality, (laughs) social justice, um, community, and simplicity. Simplicity. So and it's very is this pillar of simplicity where we say that for us means people first. Um, It means prioritizing presence, prioritizing being with others, decluttering our life, not just from the material, but from all this other s- you know, societal expectations and um, really allow ourselves to be in community one another, to be in solidarity. Because um, like you said, a lot of this solidarity building is community building is understanding that for us to really tackle the big questions of like white supremacy and capitalism and homophobia transphobia our basic needs also have to be covered and how do we cover that through society through, through mm-hmm. our community building so this plunges are a very like one day thing where you can do that Mm -hmm. and have the experience of being with other people, both your peers from Santa Clara, but those who are welcoming us to their space, which in this case are people experiencing homelessness. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I think, um, so I was a student at Santa Clara and I went on immersions um, while I was a student and the pillar that struck most with me or helped really shape how I live my life the most was simplicity. Um, because I think what simplicity does is when you are valuing people over things, it allows for so much more space in your life. Mm -hmm. It allows for more space to think about equity, to think about justice, to think about community um, in a way that is easy to lose sight of. Um, It doesn't mean just, you know, buying secondhand clothes or... Not eating meat or not spending money, it can be those things. But what it really means is I'm not gonna prioritize. I'm not gonna spend all my money and time and resources to look like what a societal expectation of someone who's mm-hmm. successful looks like. I'm not gonna spend all my resources over consuming meat or produce or, you know, the f- the fanciest, highest end mm-hmm. <laughs> um, groceries. Uh, Because my time and money is better spent focusing on people and relationships. And I think inherently when you start to do that, when you try and let go of your own ego, really, Mm -hmm. it naturally leads you towards a more justice-oriented life. Mm -hmm.
2: Um, Yeah, And I also have to say that many of us here on campus have the choice of living a simple life. Um, and that is something that we really have to acknowledge, right? Mm-hmm. That we are choosing to like, prioritize not eating meat or the way we consume, but for many others that's not a choice, right? And that is also brought into conversation then of really analyzing our identity in context and then also finding then our role in a bigger social movement. Um, because if we don't start from there, then it gets very complicated as we move forward in, you know, in the fight for social justice wherever we're choosing to focus on. Um, so that's very much integrated into all of these experiences. Yeah,
1: and like on the plunge, if you're able to set aside for a day, yeah. you know, the stress of getting assignments done and worrying about going out with your friends and what party you got invited to or. Um, you know, what people on campus think of you and you decide to show up and you said, today I decided to hang out for a day in the Tenderloin. That's Mm -hmm. exactly what everybody else who is in the Tenderloin has also done. There is a sameness there Mm -hmm. um, and there's a shared experience um, and it is definitely a privilege to opt into that and we can recognize that um, and also with hopefully maybe like some of the conversations that you had, there's a chance to move beyond that as well Mm -hmm. and find what instead of what keeps us separate what connects us mm-hmm. did you have any experiences on the plunge or you're like oh that's a connection or I feel a kinship or a sameness with with somebody that you met
0: mm-hmm. yeah it it was interesting I um my so we during this uh the immersion we did the buddy system that's who I re- my partner that I referred to earlier um and because it was like a buddy system and we were just kind of free to walk around. Um, it was interesting. I feel like I was able to connect with someone from Santa Clara, so like a SCU student, um, but also we experienced the conversations in the soup kitchen together. Um, and I was talking to her and she was kind of sharing her experience of it all. Um, and even after, cause we all went to the soup kitchen and had lunch and then came back to Faithful Fools and spoke together. And there were a lot of experiences where other students um, went in with their partners and had really meaningful conversations, um, and our conversations were very meaningful as well. But they were they were certainly different. They weren't um, like a fairy tale story. Like you came in and you were um, changed by by one conversation. But I think that almost made it more. Um, it allowed us to kind of reflect more critically. Uh, and my the my partner was saying that she didn't expect to have those conversations um, and yet I guess it it allows you to understand that these are people too and you have to put people first I guess Mm -hmm. Um, so it was interesting to think of my place at Santa Clara in, Sel- in Silicon Valley in my future career as well as this community that is just an hour or less away. Um, so kind of having that duality of being here with Santa Clara students, with my university, um, and then just seeing also a community that is not so far removed. Um, Yeah, and I think one thing that I've continued to think about to this day um, is the idea that Jasmine brought up of spatial justice, um, which I think was really interesting. And we're gonna take a break right now um, and we'll come back and talk about spatial justice as well as kind of just the Ignatian Center more broadly and other immersions that they do and the intent and the impact of those immersions.
3: Hi everyone, this is Anissa taking a little break from the conversation to fill you in on some things that will be happening pretty soon. First off, TLC board applications are live. They are looking for people to be a part of the TLC board for the 2023-2024 academic school year. The positions are listed within the application. You can either scan the QR code that is listed if you are doing this on YouTube or you can use the link in their bio to find the application. The deadline is next Friday, April 28th so actually this Friday, April 28th, and you can feel free to contact them with any questions that you have about the position. If you're going to find the link, uh, you should head to their Instagram page, uh, at TLC underscore SCU. Again, that is at TLC underscore SCU. All right, and next we have another Queer Craft Corner to present to you. Friday, April 28th, Uh, we will be doing paint swap. So come on by the OML house from 2 to 4 p.m. on Friday, April 28th, maybe with a partner, maybe with someone new that you can interact with there where we will be taking paintings and then every five minutes swapping them and creating a new piece that you probably wouldn't have thought of yourself, but looks really cool at the end. So get ready for that. Once again, that's gonna be at the OML house from 2 to 4 p.m. on Friday, April 28th. I hope to see you there. And we are still looking for any clothing or accessories that you would like to donate. You can go ahead and bring them by the OML or the RRC. Specifically, you can bring them by the RRC in Benson 11 on Tuesdays and Wednesdays from 1.30 to 5 p.m. Or you can drop them off at the OML house on Fridays from 2 to 4.30 p.m. Once again, if you have anything, just even if it's just like a shirt or maybe a bracelet or something, anything would help. It would actually help us a lot for the next event that I'm going to tell you about, which I am so excited for. The Rainbow Resource Center is presenting our first thrift tea event. So, this is going to be an event where people could come in, uh, get some free clothes, get some free accessories, as well as look into gender affirming. Resources and gender affirming care resources specifically. You don't have to pay anything to be here. You could just come and get some clothes. And it's going to be really fun. And once again, that is going to be on Sunday, April 30th, from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. in the Willowman Room. Hope to see you there. And now let's get back into the episode.
0: Welcome back. <laughs> um, so we're just going to talk about spatial justice a little bit more. Um, this was something that Jasmine brought up when we were all speaking at Faithful Fools After that I've really been pondering and I think it's something that we can all think about. Um, So Jasmine, take it away.
1: Oh boy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I will not pretend to be an expert in the idea of spatial justice, uh, but I can share what my experience was while we were there. Um, So we were sitting in this park, I guess. It it used to be a parking lot um, and a private Nonprofit had taken it over and turned it into a what they called like a community space i think they called it the oasis um and as i was sitting there i was just trying to pay attention to who is comfortable in the space and i recognized that i i was comfortable because it was a manicured space it was a controlled space that's where i chose to sit and eat lunch um there were people who were walking in with their dogs there was a place where you could grab coffee and i don't think that this space was bad for existing or wrong but what we did learn from somebody else was that that parking lot used to be an encampment um that's where folks used to live and for whatever reason and through whatever mechanism they got pushed out to make room to allow somebody who is housed who is not from the area who is who works for a university to be more comfortable in the space than they were um and I wanted to see if anybody who um Appeared to be unhoused, or if there was somebody who was using that space as a living space as well, like it used to be used. Um, and nobody came in with carts. Nobody came in with bags. Nobody came in with a lot of belongings. It seemed like most people who stopped by were, you know, walking their dogs or meeting up with friends. Um, and it just made me think a little bit more about what is a just and equitable use of space, and who gets to who gets priority. In communal spaces and is there a communal space that we can build where truly everybody feels comfortable and I'm not sure if that's true um, because we all have different needs and desires for space Um, but I think what is true is that over and over and over again especially in San Francisco where space is so limited we see a prioritization of people who can afford to be there who can afford to buy up space Um, and I don't think your ability to pay correlates to your <laughs> worthiness of taking up space. And so um, I'm still very new in my understanding of spatial justice, mm-hmm. but it was a good prompt for me to reflect on.
2: Yes, I think I was introduced to the concept of spatial justice by you and Professor Riley uh, in one of our visits to the Guadalupe River Park encampment, Um I think for me, I have been pondering about the way design plays into how we inhabit spaces, and how the use of like what is called hostile architecture is also used. Um, so specifically in San Francisco, uh, the way they corral like houseless population to the Tenderloin area is through the use of hostile ar- architecture. And this looks like spikes underneath uh, highways or like boulders in like um, sidewalks that are wide enough to like put up a tent. Um, And also in such more subtle ways like this oasis space that it was set up like a little cafe, like an outdoor cafe with like nice cute picnic tables and like a little, Um, turf space for dogs um, and it was very manicured very Mm -hmm. aesthetic I would say and I feel because it's so aesthetic and so visually pleasing we rarely criticize Mm -hmm. those spaces right? because we're comfortable there exactly Mm -hmm. Or, or like because we society has told us that you know a very beautifully manicured like lawn Mm -hmm. it's a good use of space because it's (laughs) aesthetic how could it be wrong how could it be wrong when in reality when you like dig a little bit it's like oh this beautiful thing is being used for horrible horrible um like purposes Mm -hmm. um and i think when we talk about spatial justice we really have to like Unlearn and be very careful of saying, okay, how is this like white supremacy in operation? Mm-hmm. How is this like ableist mm-hmm. in its original design? Um, also, like, how is it sexist? This is something when I started like looking into spatial justice. It's like cities are thought of like transportation, public transportation are thought of from like a man, like quote unquote man life, right? From work to home and that's it. But Mm a lot of those who have like caretaking needs, well, the bus won't go there. It Mm -hmm. won't go near schools or it won't Mm -hmm. follow like a pattern of someone that it's like Mm. doing the amount of care work who have historically been women, right? Um, So all of this is spatial justice Mm -hmm. and it's really everywhere. Mm -hmm. If you start like pulling the tread and like how we say like taking out the blindfold,
1: yeah, if you're listening to this while you're walking somewhere, yes. I invite you to just take a look around and see what you notice. Um, because there's elements of this like you said absolutely everywhere. I know in I mean on campus, mm-hmm. we can examine our mm-hmm. use of space. Is, you know, are the lawns the best use of space? Could that be housing? Could that be restorative agriculture? Could mm-hmm. that be, you know, rain and water recapturing systems? Could those be marked? Unmarked
2: graves, right? Right. At the moment, they are just like unmarked. Yeah, yes. unmarked graves under our feet. Okay.
1: Yeah. Um, there's a interesting display of this right in downtown San Jose as well. Um, there's where I think it's First Street and Market in the Sofa District. They come to a point and there's a little triangle, mm-hmm. and there's a park right there, and there's these like interesting marble sculptures. Almost, mm-hmm. they look like giant marbles just in the grass, and they're um, They're not regularly placed. They're kind of scattered. And so it looks artistic. You're like, ooh, a sculpture. Um, But really what it's doing is stopping people from camping um, or at bus stops. When you're at a bus stop, look and see if that's some place that you could lie down or if it's designed just to be able to sit or lean on for, you know, extended or a short Mm -hmm. period of time, not an extended amount of time. Um, Yeah, so... wherever you're walking or sitting or listening, I invite you to take a look around and just consider who was the space designed for um, and was it equitably designed?
0: Along with not only the urban plunge, but just other Ignatian Center immersions, I think it's really important to decenter ourselves and think about Mm. not only the intent of the immersions, but the impact that it has on the communities that we're entering, how to mitigate harm, when, when coming into these spaces. Um, and I guess I'll speak a little bit more on the conversations that I had, um, in the soup kitchen that I was mentioning earlier. Um, me and my partners spoke with, uh, three different men and the, they were kind of just like one person, um, didn't speak English. Um, so it was like a lot of, um, a lot was lost in translation and a lot of just broken dialogue. Um, and then another man was t- trying to tell us a story about... We, we were struggling to understand, but it seemed like he was trying to tell us a story um, where someone was murdered uh, that he was involved in um, and kind of sharing his thoughts on that experience. But once again, we were really struggling to understand um, just based off of verbal communication. Um, and then third person, uh, was perhaps like on drugs or took something. Um, so it was really hard to communicate with all three of them. And so I guess I turn this back to y'all and ask, how do we not romanticize these immersions? Um, and Are there ways to prevent possible harm to the communities that we are entering?
2: Yes, so first of all, I think it's important to say that we work from a transformative justice framework. So this is very much acknowledging that harm will happen because we are in relationship with each other, but it is our responsibility to both take steps to reduce that harm in any way we can, and also build in the structures for accountability. So for us, this means specifically in plunges and in immersions is we hold deep relationship with partners that have like historically been working in the area with those people for a long time. And these relationships are like institutional relationships. So it's not, we rarely go to a place once. There are places like Faithful Fools who we've been working for like almost decades, right? So that is one way we try to reduce harm in like very simple, well not simple because holding relationships is is, is complex, but just like a very straightforward way.
1: Yeah, I think also um going back to our pillar of simplicity um points us towards prioritizing each other and each other's dignity Mm -hmm. first um and never putting our own expectations for an experience or our own desires or learning outcomes or um you know anything like that above somebody else's dignity and right to autonomy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um we only enter communities that we are actively welcomed into, that we've built a relationship with. Um, and we also do our best to make them open relationships as well, where our partners are free to sh- give us feedback of mm-hmm. things that we could have done to prepare better or to be more sensitive to a topic. Um I think another part is actually preparation. Yes. Um, for our week-long immersions, we have mandatory prep meetings. Um, and these are really important because it's a chance for participants and us as well, because we are often, for the first time, experiencing immersions um, with the group. Um, it's an opportunity for us to do the legwork that we can to learn about a community or a social justice topic online from resources that are available first so that when we go into a community we're able to prioritize learning about what we can only learn from relationship. There's so much about social justice that you can learn online, that you can learn from videos, that you can learn from books Um, but there are some things that you only will learn one-on-one from relationships and so by getting all of that out of the way we're able to show our community partners that we respect them, we respect their sovereignty, we respect their experience because we've done research to try and understand it. Um, And we have a framework of understanding and a sensitivity already. And now we are trying to deepen that. Mm -hmm. Um, And there is a recognition as well that when we're going on immersion or we're we're going on an urban plunge, we are gaining more than the community is. Um, We are gaining knowledge. We're gaining perspective. We're gaining experience. um, And while we're in that experience, we're not necessarily giving. um, Sometimes there are service elements, but our immersions are definitely not service focused. Mm -hmm. and so it's important for us to continue the relationship afterwards Um, I think it's naive to think that you can solve a problem before learning about it um, but it's also disrespectful to learn about it and then not Mm -hmm. do your part to continue that relationship um, recognize the role you might play in a systemic injustice um, or try and benefit the community you've just visited and developed a relationship with as well And I think something
2: that Jasmine and I and the Ignatian Center team are constantly in conversation with is acknowledging that a lot of the reason for immersions comes from this Catholic perspective of like missions Mm -hmm. uh, or like missionary work. And then what is our work today in disrupting those harmful ways of doing work? Um, how do, can we like challenge this idea of volunteerism or this, I mean, whole narrative of poverty porn and going to s- spaces to almost consume the struggle of others. Mm-hmm. And I think for us, all the relationship building with partners, all the formation and prep work that we do is very intentional part of us disrupting that narrative. And we are very much creating this space and these experiences from a point of, we're building solidarity. We're, we're building um, a relationship where we can be in awe of the work and the amazing, uh, like, liberatory and emancip- emancipatory work that community partners do right so we are there to celebrate their successes and their i don't want to say resilience because that's not even what it is right it's so much more than resilience um we're not there to see how they suffer right Mm -hmm. we're not there to um witness the oppression of others because we are in such a privileged place right because we also acknowledge that many of our students and like ourselves as staff members and faculty we all live through like intersecting identities that might be like experiencing oppression right so we would never try to say we're all privileged from Santa Clara we do hold privileges but that's not our whole identity so how do we build this celebration from two different spaces of like liberation So that is very much like a face-to-face, person-to-person way of entering these spaces. And like you said, um, we're not there to get a fairy tale conversation and say like, oh, a person experiencing homelessness or so kind or so whatever, right? There's this inspiration story. That's not what this is. This is saying we are human and we deserve so much better And what can I do in this space that I inhabit? And like the spaces I have access to, to challenge those systems and structure that are oppressing myself and also others.
0: Yeah. Uh, I guess back, like a little bit back to the point on missionary work and the Mm. Ignatian values. what would you say to some students who are kind of skeptical of the Ignatian Center, um, just, I guess, because of the attachment with that name? Um, mm-hmm. What what work, what would you tell them about the Ignatian Center? Yeah, I think one
1: of the beauties of the Jesuit education model is that it's actually very open. Um, It doesn't necessarily have, we don't have for our immersion specific learning objectives in the way of, oh, I hope you can name 10 facts about houselessness after this urban plunge, or things like that. What we're trying to do is give students a framework for interacting with the world and understanding social justice topics. Um, And some of that does come from Jesuit ideology. Some of it does come from Catholic social teachings. Um, I think that there is, along with all the harm that the Catholic Church has caused, there is also a lot of wisdom. There's a duality there. I don't Mm -hmm. think any one person or one institution or one ideology is entirely good or entirely bad. Um, But we look at our core principles, especially of human dignity um, and community. And we give frameworks, but there's no expectation that you conform to them. There's no expectation that you agree with them. Um, and I think as well, part of our program, and one thing that really attracted me to Immersions when I was a student was that they are very, they were very open to criticism. Um, and we actively criticize ourselves and our choices. And we're constantly asking ourselves, is this equitable? Is this just? Who are we centering? Um, and we've changed practices because of that. We don't pretend to be a perfect program or a perfect <laughs> institution mm-hmm. or a perfect solution um, or perfect framework, but we are centered in a lot of Jesuit ideology um, for transformative justice. And however you want to take that, whatever tools you take away from it, even if it's like, oh, no, that's completely wrong, and none of it sits right with me, and I'm never going to do that again. like. Mm-hmm that's okay for us too, we'll want to hear that feedback, we'll, we'll want to know what you took away, um, we'll want to hear your criticism and adapt adapt it to our programs, um, but yeah there's no prescribed expectation that we have for students coming out of it. We want to encourage students to become independent thinkers who are spiritually aligned within themselves, mm-hmm. um, who are working from a place of justice and equity. Um, and maybe the emergence program isn't the place where you can do that. And that's okay, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But if you're interested, <laughs> we would encourage you to apply and come see. Yeah. Maria, yeah. anything?
2: Um, yes. I think we do acknowledge that sometimes, like, both the Catholic and the Jesuit can bring up, like harm and the history that we, you know, kind of carry, but we are also very intentional in building um, inclusive spaces. So even I think our staff is somewhat diverse in Santa Clara, <laughs> uh, right? Like I myself, I'm like, I'm a queer non-binary Mexican immigrant, um, like our student assistants are both Latinx. Uh, we And it's something Jasmine and I are always in conversation is that all our programming, we try to make it from, like we say, margins to the center. So we start with a non-white perspective from a non-Catholic perspective, right? And then everything towards the center will be included by default, but we don't do it the other way around expecting others to feel included right so we do acknowledge that of course this is jesuit tradition and this is um like we have a catholic um like ancestry in the programming uh, but that is a gift but also an invitation to be extra critical and i think that's a mm-hmm. gift uh it's it's truly a special place where you're invited explicitly to bring feedback, to bring, Mm -hmm. how can we make this better Mm -hmm. without, and because that framework allows it, right? Mm -hmm. It says like, how can I do less harm? How can I serve more people? How can I, right? It's like this idea of magis, right? Do Mm -hmm. the most, and that is a Jesuit ideal, right? Mm -hmm. So I think we use all of these tools to be better Mm -hmm. in whatever way we can.
0: Yeah, I think like part of what I'm hearing you say and part of what I think I take away from um, Ignatian Jesuit values is like, I guess it's two things. It's half my knowledge of legacies of colonialism Mm. and um, oppression that is tied up in religion, but Mm -hmm. also how is liberation tied up in values Mm -hmm. of religion um, and how can we apply those same ideas to, to thinking about the redistribution of wealth, of privilege, of power? Yeah. I wanna thank you both for being here, um, for being in conversation with me today, um, and for continuing to discuss such important topics even after the urban plunge. And as we continue to think about these things, um, these are things, that are happening today for many people that will happen tomorrow, next week. Um, so thank you for being here. Yeah, and I'm gonna give you the mic to kind of lead us out of this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for
1: having us and inviting us. Um, if anybody out there is interested in an immersion or any of our programs, um, there's a lot of info and most up-to-date about what current immersion cycles we're accepting applications for um, on our website, um, just immersions. So if you search at SEU Immersions, we'll pop up. Um, And we do have a lot of financial aid available. So just want to put that out there. Please don't let the price of an immersion be a reason you don't apply. Um, But yeah, thank you for having us. I'm glad you walked away with more questions than you came into an urban plunge with. Um, Mm. That's our biggest hope. I think that's the biggest metric of success for us. Um, And yeah, we just wanted to close out with a quote that really guides a lot of our work and hopefully summarizes some of the things we've been talking about here. Um, It's by Lila Watson, and she says, If you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together.